singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. If you guys enjoyed this show, you can help me making make it better by writing a review on iTunes or by simply making a donation. As always, I will be the man with the questions, and today my guest is a co-founder of Skype and Kazaa, who got so famous in his homeland of Estonia that people actually named the biggest city after him. So without further ado, welcome Jan Tallinn. Yeah, uh, well, I wish, wish that your statement was true. <laughs> city is much, much older than, than I am. Uh, much older than I, you. I, I hope to be... Uh, um, eventually be as old as the city is now. <laughs> oh, you hope to live as long as the yeah, city? Yeah, I can. I say that I am uh, uh, I am not against death, but I'm against the involuntary death. Uh, <laughs> and uh, over the grey, etc. Uh, uh, I know people like him and so uh, as I completely share, share their efforts. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, anyway, it's an interesting coincidence that uh, your family name and, and your biggest city is the same, Tallinn. But it's even more interesting that you're a life extensionist. Uh, and by the way, your comment reminded me of a little bit to Woody Allen when uh, he was being interviewed uh, on one of the latest films in Cannes. Uh, they asked him, well, you always have a lot about death. So much about death in your movies. Has your relationship with death changed? And he said... No, my my attitude's always been the same. I'm very much against it. <laughs> yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it kind of reminded me to that. But if I were to ask you to introduce yourself in your own words, Jan, how would you do that in the best way possible? I have actually had uh, I have a few quirky uh, introductions uh, about myself. One of them is... Okay, let's hear the most quirky one, perhaps. The one that I used in uh, in a party and uh, confused everyone uh, was that I'm a, I'm a guy who can take credit for about one million saved human relationships uh, that I uh, saved using my uh, my software. <laughs> oh wow! And you're referring to Skype? That there have been more, but like I think I can take credit for one million. Uh, and uh, how did you quantify that? Just like a Fermi calculation, like. Uh, See, like how, how many people come to me, uh, and uh, how many users Skype has had. Uh, so, and uh, yeah, how many people contributed to Skype? So, I think the rough estimate would be uh, one million. Uh, another one uh, that I've uh, used a couple of times is that I'm a, I am a physicist, and uh, part of the conspiracy of physicists to save the world. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah, I would bring in some other physicists in our uh, conversation later on, such as uh, Dr. Michio Kaku, who is a big skeptic about some of the things we are going to be discussing. There, there is in- there is interesting correlation between uh, or interesting overrepresentation of physicists among the existential risk circles, and even people who wouldn't know that they are physicists, they actually have physics uh, diploma. Nick Bostrom, for example as a physics uh, physics degree, and uh, Stuart Russell, uh, who is uh, like a, sort of the leading figure in academia right now uh, among AI researchers uh, about these topics, uh, is a physicist from Oxford. So. 
Yes, and of course, the most notable examples are Dr. Stephen Hawking and uh, perhaps Max Tegmark also, uh, right? Martin Rees and Hugh Price, who is the uh, co-founder of Center for Study of Existence Risk in, in Cambridge, is a philosopher. Well, guess what? He has a physics degree. <laughs> Very interesting. So uh, we may come back to that point, but but let me ask you first a few things about yourself. Is it the case that after you moved on from Kazai and Skype, uh, you're kind of mostly spending your time now in two activities. One would be venture capitalist sort of investments, and the other would be as perhaps an evangelist to existential risks that humanity is facing today. Right. Uh, although like a couple of clarifications there. First of all, I mostly spend my time on agent investments, uh, although, uh, yeah, we do have... Um, for the VC slash uh, private equity company together with other Skype founding engineers. Uh, and on the existential risk side, uh, I don't think I'm only doing the evangelism. I'm also uh, just, uh, I would say I'm trying to build the world's muscle uh, when it comes to dealing with uh, potential existential risks. Uh, so I do really everything. I kind of network, I give talks, I just give money to people and uh, even kind of double in some research a little bit, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, fascinating. Interesting. Uh, so going back perhaps to the previous point, noting that there's so many theoretical physicists in the field, perhaps you can share with us your journey of sort of starting in theoretical physics and even space travel at warp speeds, uh, of course, uh, and then moving into issues such as existential risks in general, and then uh, artificial intelligence in particular. First of all, I'm kind of physicists, uh, physicist by degree and perhaps by spirit, but not so much uh, by sort of, uh, occupation. Like I was a computer programmer uh, already in primary school and had a games company uh, already in high school which was a bit of a feat because the, uh, that was in uh, back in Soviet Union uh, where private enterprise wasn't really uh, just was uh, freshly become legal. Uh, so like when I when we had to decide like what to uh, what to study in university, uh, myself and my partner in crime, Ahti, who later became the CTO uh, of uh, Skype or the uh, chief technical architect of Skype. Uh, we decided that well, we know everything about computers already. So, so why, <laughs> why spend time in universities uh, like studying more about uh, computers? And let's let's study something else. Let's study physics. And then we went to study physics. And on second year, Ratti uh, saw that okay, this is just a waste of time. He's going to drop out and actually do something useful. But I kind of uh, pushed myself through and got a degree in physics, uh, uh, which I think is is actually helpful uh, for my from a worldview, but not so much. Uh, so physics wasn't really a start of my journey, I guess that's what I'm, what I'm uh, saying here. So computers were the original yes, love. Yes, exactly. And uh, kind of the longer, uh, longer background uh, fact about me. Uh, so yeah, like w once uh, I started scaling out uh, from Skype, uh, Skype got bigger and bigger and uh, uh, there were like many sales, Skype was sold like three or four times depending how you count and uh, 
at some point there was this big lawsuit that, during which I couldn't really participate in Skype's uh, development. And when I came back, so many stuff had changed. So many things had changed, so I never kind of fully caught up. Uh, and I was kind of looking for for other interesting and uh, important things to do. It's like a friend of mine, after we sold Skype, said that, so, Jan, so how does it feel to have your life's work done at such an early age? <laughs> 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 Which was annoying. Uh, and so I was kind of looking for things to do and uh, stumbled upon Eliezer Yudkowski's writings uh, on uh, overcoming bias and later less wrong. And I couldn't really find the flaw in his arguments. Uh, and they seem to be really crazy on surface, uh, but I'm a programmer, so I can't judge arguments by how crazy they sound. I judge them uh, whether they make sense on logical level or not. Uh, so at some point, I kind of uh, wrote him an email and, and we caught, uh, we basically met up and, and spoke for many, many hours. Uh, after which I thought, that, okay, I should really start investigating this. And then, then I, I attended a couple of Singularity Summits. Uh, and at the summit 2010, I approached uh, Michael Vassar, uh, who's a friend of mine now. And uh, uh, he basically uh, started introducing me to various uh, people in this uh, uh, whole existential risk scene. And this is like how I really kind of uh, got started. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So let me ask you first uh, the, the sort of the shiny side of the coin. What's your biggest dream, Jan? What's like the best case scenario? What is the, the kind of the dream that's like keeping you going or that's making you cheerful and, and, and working towards? I think my life is so much fun uh, that, that uh, okay. okay, two things. Like one is that I think my life is a lot of fun, surprising amount of fun. Uh, and uh, the other thing is like because the, the biggest worry about uh, sort of AI disasters are about side effects. Uh, like we, we create something thinking that it does X, but no, it does actually X plus Y or even X plus Epsilon. And, and then like the, the Y or Epsilon is like, is, is like really, 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 really detrimental for us. So in that sense, actually kind of generalizing from this, I'm not sure if I want to uh, kind of paint the picture of paradise or, or some uh, uh, transhuman uh, utopia, because I know like uh, my picture is going to have like so many like, bad side effects uh, if, if it would actually kind of materialize. So instead, I, I think I'm kind of focus on the reverse side of the coin with the risks. Risks perhaps. and also also like uh, uh, on the observation that the world isn't doing that badly right now. The the there was this uh, article report last year that 2015 was the best year for humanity that humanity has ever had. Uh, so. The trends are good, so so it's it's uh, obviously there's a lot of uh, suffering and misfortune outside out there still, uh, but the trends are good, and uh, so my kind of conservative vision was sort of like minimum viable 
uh, utopia would be just keep this keep these trends going and solidify them and make sure that we're not going to just like fall off the cliff at some point. But people would argue with you that that's actually not the case. I mean, turn on the TV, you'll see utter disasters, political uh, terrorism, Syria, the Middle East is falling apart, not mentioning even bigger issues perhaps, such as uh, the threat of uh, nuclear confrontation, which seems to be rising lately, uh, not mentioning issues such as global, global warming, uh, an, uh, which can threaten us tremendously, and, and another one such as perhaps uh, species extinction, extinction uh, which uh, some people say we have not witnessed uh, since the last, uh, you know, 65 million years ago or something like that. Uh, so, I mean, how do you square your kind of claim that we are sort of, we've had the best year ever? Well, that, well, that was my claim, by the way. That was... Uh, uh... That was some article that I read where people did some an analysis and, and looked at what what the previous years were, and uh, so like one thing is that you you shouldn't draw your sample of the world from media. Like uh, you will get the only newsworthy stuff from media, and like uh, people having happy lives isn't really like, newsworthy. Uh, so like uh, for example, like I think that uh, there is this uh, possible paradox. Like once we get uh, self-driving cars. And the accident rate would drop uh, to the level where it would make accidents newsworthy. That would, might actually make the car travel perceived as more risky. <laughs> that's that's like uh, because like oh there was a car accident. Like uh, if there's like a worldwide news about this, like people would actually kind of be more hesitant to touch it. Because it would be so rare and Exactly. Unique. And so they, they, and humans have this thing called availability bias. Uh, when they try to assess the risk of an event occurring, they try to think about when they last heard about this thing. Meaning that uh, the, the most, the rarer the event, uh, like media actually kind of makes it uh, more likely that they have heard it recently. Anyway, so like that is one thing. Like you shouldn't kind of uh, assess the world state uh, based on media reports. Uh, they are biased. Uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right about uh, about uh, there being very real risk, very very real risks such as uh, nuclear exchange uh, and the very real uh, sort of adverse trends like uh, global warming. Uh, so it's I do think that it's, it's important to not naively uh, extrapolate uh, from the fact that things have been kind of improving over the centuries and decades and years. Uh, on average, uh, we shouldn't like, uh, sort of assume uh, that these trends are going to continue. In fact, I think this is what a lot of the technology optimists are doing. They kind of look at the fact that technology has been great for humanity. And there's actually a good reason why it has been, because there's this market, market feedback loop. Markets have been selecting for technology that has been good for humanity. But we shouldn't kind of uh, uh, assume that this is uh, like a law of physics, that uh, whatever technology comes next is going to be uh, always better, or, or always going to make our lives better. Well, the critics say that the laws of physics actually go against the, the progress of technology, uh, because while we may have made progress for humanity, in our human domain, it has come at the cost of the planetary biosphere, for example, 
so physics would say we're working with limited resources, uh, uh, whether in the form of species, whether in the form of, uh, you know, biosphere uh, resources uh, and stuff like that. And we've been exhausting them disproportionately and our technology has created huge negative externalities, right? So while we're making think, measuring things in economics, we cannot really properly measure environmental degradation or species extinction, and there's no associated cost with that that we pay for, or global warming per se, which is why we have these perverse incentives to keep doing the same, because it pays in the short term in economic terms, though it may not be paying in the long term in planetary terms. Yeah, that's, that's effectively uh, correct. So uh, it's... Uh, like, in fact, I am right now uh, working on a document uh, that uh, I got inspiration for uh, from a wonderful essay called Meditations on Moloch uh, written by Scott Alexander uh, on blog called uh, Slate Star Codex uh, where he pointed out that uh, just as you said uh, that uh, many of the Humanity's biggest problems have this common game theoretic kernel uh, that they are bad Nash equilibriums. People have local incentives to do X, yet we, we know that if enough people do X, uh, such as overfish, we will end up in a bad, bad, predictably end up in a bad situation. Tragedy of the commons. So I'm trying to think, uh, like, first of all, research and also think about like other ways how we can... Uh, uh, just improve the Nash equilibriums that we play in. Uh, and there are some positive examples. Uh, I think the most famous one is ozone layer. Uh, that uh, that was a bad Nash equilibrium uh, that we managed to climb out of. Uh, so. I see, yes, I agree. Okay, so we may come back to that, but let me ask you to be more specific here. So what, in your view, are the biggest uh, existential risks that humanity is facing today? I generally agree with the... Uh, with the assessment of people like uh, Future Humanity Institute uh, in Oxford. And uh, there, I think the top four or five, uh, they were uh, sort of uh, uh, non-value aligned artificial intelligence, uh, then uh, some weird organisms from synthetic biology, uh, then nanotechnology going wrong, uh, then like unknown unknowns, and then like for measure, good measure, like uh, with that uh, nuclear arsenal. So the, I think nuclear arsenal is like an, uh, a nuclear uh, war, like all out nuclear war, is uh, sort of a, like a, on a borderline, it's, it's probably not an existential risk. Uh, it's probably some people will survive an all-out uh, nuclear war. Uh, but uh, first of all, we don't exactly know, and we probably don't want to try. And second, uh, uh, nuclear threat is something that people understand. So you can kind of start with nuclear threat and then uh, sort of uh, lead people towards what I consider are bigger uh, bigger threats, including the unknown unknown. Unknown unknowns are just observation that, that uh, those four in the top five are less than 100 years old. Uh, so if you're really thinking 100 years uh, ahead, it's possible that we're going to get more in, in, that, uh, in that top. 
Let me let me push back a little bit on that, uh, perhaps by sharing my own personal journey in this. So when I started this blog, uh, originally I would have probably agreed with the ranking. So let me say, I agree with the listing of those uh, existential risks. I have issues with the ranking of them. And five or six years ago, when I started doing this podcast and this blog, 190 interviews ago, I would have probably agreed with the ranking too. Now I have gotten back to where I was before that, which I admit was uh, uh, my area of uh, uh, in the academy was political science. Uh, and so now, for example, I would rank uh, human intelligence-related uh, existential risks, such as uh, nuclear war, to be much higher uh, than, uh, for example, artificial intelligence. And the reason... Uh, is multi multiple. Uh, there's multiple reasons for my uh, sort of change of heart, if you will. One is uh, the experience I've gathered in the last 190 interviews, talking to people in the field of AI and so on. But the other is also the formula of sort of impact of each potential event multiplied by the likelihood of each of those, multiplied by the urgency or the perceived timeline to it. Right, how urgent it is, how close or far away we are to it. And so in my kind of formula this way, I would put nuclear weapons or other WMGs uh, at the top of the list. Uh, and I think uh, the behavior of people such as Putin annexing Crimea uh, and basically invading other countries like Ukraine or going into Syria and then... That's very close to home to me, yeah. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I grew up in the Eastern Bloc in Bulgaria, just like you did in Estonia. So we have a, a kind of a unique perspective on that, if you will. But but also now we can observe other phenomena such as Donald Trump rising to prominence in American policy uh, politics. Imagine Donald Trump and Mr. Putin in charge of 95 percent of the nuclear weapons in the world. I mean, to me, that kind of both raises both the likelihood and the urgency of, of problems that we may be foreseeing uh, on, the, on the nuclear weapons danger front. Um, and, and then, you know, we have the possibility of other uh, weapons of mass destruction, such as biological, etc., which are becoming cheaper and more accessible as technology becomes more and more uh, advanced and, and easily accessible. And we have uh, uh, people doing biohacking and all kinds of other phenomena. And now lots of people, just like people used to start computer companies in the 70s and the 80s, now they start biotech companies in their garages, whether in Silicon Valley or elsewhere. So what, what would you say to, to something like that? Where do I get it wrong? Where's, my, where's the flaw in my logic? I guess the... Uh... So one one crucial point is that like how how much do we uh, value future generations, uh, and uh, so if if one really values uh, future generations, uh, and that's why uh, I sometimes when I get into an argument with with people about existential risk, I ask them do they have children or not, uh, and uh, but if you do have children, you will value future generations. Uh, and uh, as my co-founder at the uh, Center for Study of Existential Risk uh, at Cambridge, Martin Rees uh, likes to point out that uh, 
there is a difference between killing 99% of humanity and 100% uh, of humanity, and the difference is not 1%. Uh, because if you kill 100% uh, of people, you will lose all the future generations. Uh, there will be no recovery from this point. Uh, so the big question is, like, what is the probability of uh, nuclear, all-out nuclear war, which I absolutely agree is, is, a, is a massive massive problem and uh, something that uh, seems actually much more soluble than, than the much more volatile situation with AI. Uh, it's, there have been some studies uh, uh, where people have been comparing the effects of supervolcanoes, supervolcanoes uh, eruptions that uh, humanity has survived to the effects from uh, nuclear winter. And then like, basically calculating that, that it's uh, the, the probability of uh, killing everyone with an all-out by detonating all the nuclear arsenal isn't that great. I think they were discredited, actually, those studies. And there were new studies after that. Because you're referring to the ones which are saying that in an all-out nuclear war, mainly the northern hemisphere would be impacted. Therefore, life would survive in the sort of southern hemisphere and stuff like that because not all of the planet will be impacted. The impact of nuclear weapons has been uh, dramatically underestimated. There's been new studies afterwards. Okay, perhaps I don't have recent data, at which point I would definitely update. Yeah. But that but aside, also, how do you measure the, 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 the chance that AI would destroy 100%? How do we know that it wouldn't destroy 90 or, or 85 or 97 how can we quantify that? Because, I mean, it's easier to quantify on nuclear weapons than on the AI uh, possibility. Uh, so, like, first of all, like, uh, I think it's, uh, some, in some ways, like, AI is uh, like an outlier in, in this, uh, in this, like, uh, top risks that I, that I mentioned. Uh, and uh, sort of the one thing uh, why it's an outlier is that it has a massive positive side. Uh, like uh, in, in that's much bigger than than, than any other other te technology there because like it's a sort of meta technology. Like if we get this right, we'll uh, automatically fix all the other existential risks. Whereas like if we just get uh, nanotechnology right, we're not going to fix the AI risk automatically. Uh, so in some ways, I am actually not even sure uh, whether just going ahead and developing AI is going to be a positive or negative. It's possible that that we like uh, even though we will die most of the most of the worlds the worlds that that uh, uh, remain are just so good that they can over uh, as a kind of utilitarian i have to uh overweight like uh, uh the average actually wouldn't be that bad uh that said i don't i don't, uh, I don't think that's uh uh, uh some like uh, a good heuristic to uh we have to be much more careful uh when we assess the uh, potential futures, potential AI futures. Uh, but yeah, AI has a massive, posit massive positive uh, side. So, so it's uh, uh, we can't just say that it's an existential threat. It, it is an existential opportunity, as they say as well. Uh, now, whereas nuclear weapons have no positive yeah, exactly. effect whatsoever. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you can probably kind of. Uh, uh, conjure up some <laughs> some weird uh, uh, game theoretic positive. Uh, like mutual assured destruction or whatnot. Uh, yeah, the, the world hasn't had world wars uh, after the invention of nuclear weapons. Uh, whether that's a causation or correlation, we don't know. Now, 
the but the AI thing is that the, the really kind of important thing about AI is that it's just it's just much more powerful uh, than than any other uh, things on the on the list uh, because it kind of includes those things in the list like whatever. Uh, like once we have AI that's, that's better at developing technology than humans are, like all the concerns we have about technology, we have to kind of uh, uh, like include in our, in our concerns about uh, what AI is going to do. Uh, so, I agree completely with you. It's the most powerful technology. I just don't see the logical jump from it being the most powerful to it guaranteed to extinct or extinguish a hundred percent of us. That's where I kind of fail to make the logical jump. So one way of uh, like it's a definitely a possibility but is how probable or likely it is I cannot estimate. So uh, one interesting observation about the universe is that uh, like uh, we are in a very atypical point uh, of the universe. Uh, somebody said I forget who that that if you if you take a typical point in the universe uh, it's complete. It's going to be completely pitch black because it's uh, it's uh, so far from the stars that you can't even see them. Uh, so we shouldn't take our environment uh, for granted. Uh, and uh, like uh, anything uh, that would kind of even slightly disturb anything, any technology that has the power to even slightly disturb our environment is going to uh, just exterminate uh, life on this planet. Because like if in, in kind of absolute scale, the, the point, the random point in the universe and, and uh, uh, the environment that we, that we have now, uh, they're just like so far apart. If you, if you, if you only slightly perturb it, like it's, it's not going to be uh, compatible with uh, continued life. So that, that's, why, that's why I think like if you're talking about uh, technologies that can have the power to uh, rearrange atoms on this planet, it's really hard to, to uh, remain uh, alive if it, if it turns a uh, solar system into a computronium. So, so it's, uh, that's, why, that, that, that's why I'm just like, thinking about the, about the scale. It's kind of really hard to uh, massively terraform the planet and uh, in a way that only affects like 99% of people. Right, and I agree with you on that, but nuclear, all-out nuclear war is also terraforming the planet in a yeah, different yeah, yeah. way. So sometimes when I want to be euphemistic about what I'm concerned about this, is that I'm really concerned about long-term environmental sustainability <laughs> because like, almost all the extension risks, uh, they manifest themselves uh, by making the environment un 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 uninhabitable. Exactly. And, and also, the uh, huge importance to that uh, assessment that we make here, logically speaking, is the definition of life. So is AI going to be considered life or not? Is that computronium going to be considered life or not? Because if it is, and if, if AI is life, whether we exist or not, then life continues in the universe. So it's not going to be the dark, pitch dark, uh, kind of infinitely boring point in the universe, but it's going to be a bustling computing things happening kind of a computronium. This is the moment where I usually ask people, do you have children? 
And I say no, I admit I don't. So, so yeah, like uh, I have had uh, like people say things like, uh, perhaps humanity does not need, does not deserve to survive. Uh, and then, like, do you have children? <laughs> no, I haven't said that. I haven't. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I'm just like uh, giving. Uh, uh, the, the, I think the general class is that people sometimes make kind of abstract arguments uh, about uh, why the AI future is going to be good, nevertheless. Uh, uh, but I think the, kind of the practical details uh, are, are also important. Uh, so, for example, in your, your thing, it's like, is this thing going to be conscious or not? Is important. We have no idea what consciousness is. Well, we have some idea what consciousness is, but uh, not enough to actually make uh, confident predictions uh, about uh, whether there will be consciousness in the universe or what or the alternative is called Disneyland without children. Well, well, some of the 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 things that I'm saying are kind of me just being Socrates here and trying to push you further. But others are actually things that have come uh, in my previous conversation with some very notable people. So, for example, let me give you a couple of examples. I interviewed both uh, Noam Chomsky and Dr. Marvin Minsky. And Lucky you. <laughs> I was amazed both of them agreed on the following claim that we have made zero progress in artificial intelligence for the last 50 years, that all the progress that has been made has been made in what they both called narrow artificial intelligence, that it has been uh, made based on brute forcing, basically, which Ron Chomsky said in the 50s was the only way we have chance to make anything until and unless we have a better theory of mind, which, by the way, Dr. Minsky also entirely agreed with it. And some other people whom we brought uh, into our conversation in our before the interview started, like John Horgan said in my interview, uh, you know, AI is like nuclear fusion. It's always 30 years away, right? So in the 50s, people thought, oh, we're just going to have like, you know, five or 10 years and we'll have AI and it's been 50 or 60 years and we still don't have it. So my question to you is, have we really made much progress? Because as I said, my formula for ranking those existential risks is impact multiplied by likelihood multiplied by urgency. That's correct. So, so how far away are we? Have we? Are we getting closer? Are we making progress? I mean, I, I, I think you have to have a like pretty weird worldview uh, to, to say that we haven't made any progress on, on, on AI. Like, I mean, you can always define. I mean, there's this uh, thing called... Ah, I forget whose law it was. Basically, once something, uh, uh, once AI development managed to do something, it stops being called AI. Uh, so, uh, so there is that. AI is anything we haven't accomplished yet. Exactly, and by that definition, yes, we have made zero in progress uh, towards AI. Uh, but uh, like, I think it's just foolish to brush aside uh, uh, latest breakthroughs from people like DeepMind. And uh, it, when, when also like when you when you say that everything is kind of narrow, narrow AI, I don't think that uh, the uh, games playing uh, AI that I did that took, takes like the visual representation of the field uh, of, of the of, of a computer game and then figures out how to act in that computer game is is narrow AI in the context of that computer game. 
Well, let me ask you this: Can it do anything else other than playing that game? Yes. It, 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 what what this what the system did uh, was it played like hundreds of different games. I understand, but can it do any other function? Because that's the difference between narrow and and uh, uh, general AI. General AI can do many many um, any. I, I think it's like important to kind of communicate the uh, uh, the difference uh, between. Uh, a narrow AI and and uh, and uh, general AI. <clears throat> the uh, and this uh, the point is that uh, within the domain of computer Atari computer games, which is like limited domain uh, because it doesn't have enough like comparable amount of data that the real world has and the comparable amount of degrees of freedom. Uh, but it's like like the typical uh, AIs that uh, play computer games, usually as an opponent uh, to humans or like non-player characters, uh, they are custom built for that game. They know that basically people have put in the rules of the game and have like uh, developed algorithms uh, that make those characters react and play in the game. Whereas what DeepMind did was take the visual Pixel representation, what's going on, this, going on on the screen, and and slap uh, general reinforcement learning, deep learning, uh, Q learning, I think they called it, uh, AI on top of that. So it actually looked at the game and uh, explored its uh, possible actions and learned what is the structure of the game, what are the algorithms. So it, the, the algorithms that uh, Atari playing. AI ended up using were not developed by humans. These are the algorithms that it, it itself learned uh, from just observing the view. So you can like imagine that in that sense, like in the system was general within the domain of uh, uh, this game. You can imagine that if we had computers that are like million or like I don't know billion times faster, which is like I don't know if the Moore's law would continue, uh, which. It seems that it, it's not it's not obvious that that it will if it would continue. We're talking about a few decades. It's it's not inconceivable that you could kind of take this Atari playing uh, AI almost unmodified, run it on a computer that's like billion or trillion times faster, and just hook it up to your webcam or like a, a security camera instead of instead of having it uh, uh, playing in the domain of uh, uh, 2D games. And, and DeepMind already are are, are Upgrading the system to 3D games, uh, so it like uh, once you have that system and and the computers that are much much more powerful, I think it's like just ridiculous to say that that the AI hasn't made any progress. You know, I, I was I I agree with you entirely on that, but I was amazed when Marvin Minsky told me precisely that. I was less amazed when Noam Chomsky did so, but I was very very much amazed. Uh, by Marvin Minsky, and, and let me try and support their vision here a little bit. So they would reply to you, perhaps, that, yes, you're making a valid point of the difference between, let's say, for example, Deep Blue, which defeated Gary Kasparov in chess, and Deep Mind, which recently won in Go, oh, Alpha right? Green, yes, yep. As you said, fundamental differences there. And yet, they would reply, in both cases, they're limited to the particular domain, whether it's chess playing or whether it's the game of Go. In other words, you cannot copy and paste that uh, AI and ask it to drive a car or ask it 
to fly an airplane or ask it to uh, tell you to play Jeopardy or ask it to uh, diagnose cancer. So in other words, it's very narrow. It does only one thing. I'm pretty sure that with slight modifications, you can, you can ask it to, to diagnose cancer. That's my next question, yes. So, so because I know you were actually an investor in, in DeepMind, if I'm... Yeah, I'm director of DeepMind, yes. So, so what's next? That's very interesting for me. What's next and how do we go from this limited domain, which quite honestly, very few people care about geeks and, and, and probably... Well, I mean, AlphaGo was a huge news in, in Asia, especially. I agree, absolutely. I agree, absolutely. But let's talk about the Western world. How can we show people this is really artificial intelligence? What would be the next step? I mean, I'm not sure if it's like a sort of... Uh cool in itself to show people that this is an, an artificial no no but usefulness demonstrates right applicability demonstrates effectiveness demonstrates the existence of anything like that so yes we're making those benchmarks along the line that ray kurzweil is talking about towards the singularity and artificial intelligence but interesting thing is that for example i interested i interviewed david ferrucci who was the team leader of ibm behind watson and i asked him so ray kurzweil said that watson is like a perfect example of a benchmark along the way towards the singularity. Do you see that? And he said, I absolutely do not see that. I absolutely cannot see how that's going to happen. So it's interesting to me that I've talked to all those people who are there at the cutting edge and who don't see those things. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, Watson is a completely uh, closed, uh, closed system, so it's like uh, hard to tell like what, what it really was. Uh, other than it, it did have uh, great performance in, in a couple of domains. And yet they're trying to translate it to medical diagnosis, to perhaps data analysis, to customer service on phone calls, and to a bunch of other things. Even law companies are taking it to do some paralegal and legal assistant jobs and stuff like that. And there's an open API, by the way, for for Watson now, for developers. So like, I mean, one thing is that... Uh... There is this very real trade-off uh, that you have to make when you're doing AI for research purposes or AI for kind of practical uh, application uh, purposes. And like, for example, in robotics, you can see it like uh, really, really well. Like, I don't think that robots are anything to uh, fear, other than perhaps military robots. Uh, this, they, they have their own uh, catastroph, catastrophic failure modes. Uh, but uh, the thing is that with robotics is that uh, as my uh, long business partner, uh, Ahti, uh, has said that uh, like usually the reason why robots fail, they're like really, really mundane. You just forget to... Uh, like bring a battery or, or like there, there's some some uh, like some soldier uh, point is is, uh, is uh, like not properly soldiered. Uh, so you I think Mario Minsky also made that point that, that uh, roboticists end up uh, just soldiering a lot and uh, as opposed to actually developing the AI and I, I think the important point is that uh, uh, in robotics, and uh, sort of application-oriented areas uh, in general, uh, there's a lot of additional work that needs to be done in addition uh, to the AI bit. So, so 
those application areas, if you're if you're actually focusing on application things, even like providing healthcare, you're actually unlikely uh, going to be making sort of the breakthrough AI research. Uh, yeah. AI research breakthroughs. Uh, AI research breakthroughs are probably more likely to come from places like DeepMind that are just focusing on the research. Uh, but now, of course, they are actually doing some uh, applications as well. Uh, but I think they are kind of keeping uh, those teams separate as far as I know. Uh, so uh, let me give you another example of another person uh, I've interviewed on my show. His name is Peter Voss. Uh, uh, and he works uh, on artificial general intelligence. Uh, and he said the following to me. Uh, uh, during a recent visit uh, in Los Angeles, we went out for dinner and he told me, look, it's impossible to develop artificial general intelligence if you're working on artificial narrow intelligence. So he told me that those are his words, not mine. He said, how many people in the world are explicitly working on artificial general intelligence? And he said, there's very few, because I was talking to him about DeepMind and, and Watson and all those other places. And he's like, well, those people, if you listen to their interviews and if you watch what they're saying, they're saying they're working on artificial narrow intelligence. So how can they ever develop a general intelligence if they're admittedly working on narrow one? DeepMind's tagline is soul intelligence. So. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I absolutely it is, which is a fascinating play of words. But but he said, forget about the marketing and the mottos, right? I mean, Google would also say, we are not a search engine, we are an AI company, and we want to know what you want to know before you want to know it. That's what Eric Schmidt said years ago. But but Peter Voss says there's very few people working on AGI currently. Some of them are him. Some some are people like Ben Giorgio, for example. But very few, in other words. I think that uh, uh, sort of a soft version of that statement is pretty close to what I just said. That if you have a sort of pull from application areas, uh, then you are going to then your you know, actual research is going to be suboptimal. And I think I, I, Ben Giorgio has made that point uh, uh, as well. Uh, before, so I think that's, that that is absolutely true. Uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, I, I don't think you can kind of uh, say that DeepMind is a narrow AI. You're basically bending the definition if you, if you're saying that DeepMind is not uh, aiming for general AI. You're you're saying that we're making progress, but let me share with you uh, a little bit of a frustration, which is not related to uh, artificial intelligence in particular, yet it is related with technology in general, and it's a very good example that may be close to your home, and that's particularly Skype. So let me tell you this. I've been using Skype to record my interviews for six years now, and for the last six years, it's been getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And what I mean by that is this. I, I have to use... I'm forced to use third-party plugin software to record this conversation with you. And Skype has first gotten, in my personal experience, more unreliable in the last six years than it was six years ago. And secondly, it keeps breaking the third-party software that I have to use, whether deliberately or not, that I have to use to record these. It's been such an absolute nightmare. Uh, and, and I've gone through maybe... All of the available, which are about half a dozen available vendors uh, on market right now, and it's a hit and miss. Every interview that I do with Skype right now, I have no, uh, I cannot predict whether I'll be able to record it or not, and that's why I always have a Zoom backup. 
the reason why I prefer Skype is because the recordings are much higher quality and I'm able to separate the video streams, which allows me to uh, edit separately afterwards and do better stuff in post-production. But Zoom is much more uh, sort of uh, reliable. And people have, many people that I know, my friends, have moved away from Skype even. And they're like, oh, that's like so 2000 or something. Like Now we have Zoom, we have other stuff. And to me, is it fair to say, and do you agree with the statement that, in my view at least, Skype has deteriorated for the last six, seven, ten years, I don't know, than originally. And I mean, people said, you know, originally, my understanding is that Skype even had encryption embedded, so the NSA couldn't even monitor the, the original uh, uh, conversations as well as after Microsoft bought them, then there were all kinds of issues that we started experiencing. Well, I've been with Skype for 10 years or so. <laughs> well, like, uh, uh, I've been with Skype uh, for a while, so I really can't speak for Skype nor Microsoft. Uh, in my own personal experience, uh, since I'm kind of very, fairly careful uh, with my setup and I have a good internet connectivity, uh, it's, uh, I don't think I can, you know, uh, I don't think I had the same experience that that uh, Skype experience has deteriorated. Uh, like, I do think that there is some correlation between what you just said. You said that uh, Skype's quality is higher and its reliability is lower. I mean, if you are hostage hostage to the uh, sort of your bandwidth situation, uh, that's, that's I have the best you can buy in Canada. Yeah, yeah, but your your conversation partners don't. So so it's. Uh, the, like this is what you would expect. Like the, it's it's much easier that you are reliable, uh, reliable, fully reliable conversation that has lower quality. Uh, whereas whereas like if you're really trying to push like many many pixels uh, through the connection that that might have some interference, etc. I think the issue is more the compatibility with the recording software plugins and and my failure to understand why Skype doesn't implement such easy. Thing inside of their uh, user interface, why do I have to resort to third parties and why do they keep breaking the compatibility? That blows my mind. And I, I used to never have that problem six years ago. Now I had to go through half a dozen of suppliers and none of them actually works. And even this one I'm using now is a hit and miss. Again, sort of honest, like, the first answer is I don't know. Uh, like thinking back uh, 10 years ago or so, uh, there was like they're, they're actually kind of like if you're running a business, there are uh, actual trade-offs that you have to make. You have to think about uh, like if you have limited, if you're limited by money, which Skype really wasn't. If you're limited by uh, sort of uh, developer bandwidth, which Skype always was, then you have to think about like where do you spend uh, this development? Like who are the, your your markets and who are your users who you want to. Uh, Please the most, and I think in Skype's case, it always was that uh, people who did sort of integrations and uh, used the API, they kind of took the backseat. We were always trying to find uh, sort of uh, ways to uh, grow, and there was no. Uh, I don't think there was. Although we did have, did have like people who were sort of developer advocates, etc. Uh, but the, I mean, App Store was not launched uh, back then. iPhone wasn't a thing. Uh, so there wasn't really a strong 
conviction in the company that you could build like a massive developer ecosystem uh, around Skype. So I guess that was that was one of the reason why uh, they were kind of uh, very often forgotten when developer resources were assigned. I don't know what what's what's going on right now, but uh, it could be also some kind of very pragmatic uh, decisions. And it's not perhaps so important. I just wanted to sort of vent my frustrations and give an example at the same time of a technology which, in my experience, has deteriorated rather than improved for the last six years, uh, which I think may be pertinent to our conversation. But I know your time is very valuable, so let me quickly go through the next few questions for the next few minutes, if I may. So, are you a soft takeoff or hard takeoff scenario kind of guy? I think uh, it's... uh... Actually, it kind of ties to the earlier question about uh, timelines uh, or like how what progress progress uh, AI has made. I think in both those questions, uh, they are first of all they are really important questions. Uh, like, uh, what is the progress that we are making in AI, and uh, is it going to be a soft takeoff or hard takeoff? If we had any idea how to how to do research to find out more about uh, about these questions, we should definitely do it. It would be like really worthwhile uh, thing to spend money and uh, time on. Uh, the uh, so it's like uh, when we talk about progress, it's uh, uh, like the question really isn't like how how much progress like, can we say that that we have made uh, like uh, well, zero or more progress. The question is like how confidently can we say that we have made zero progress? And we, we I don't think like it's 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 just would be insane to say confidently that we have made zero progress. Uh, and uh, the same thing with, with soft takeoff and hard takeoff. It's probably like less of a question like, uh, uh, like, do you think soft takeoff is more likely or hard takeoff is more likely? The question is like, if you think that soft takeoff is more likely, how confident you are in that? Uh, because like, uh, even if there's a chance of like 10% or like 1% of hard takeoff, like we should like really, really, uh, if you define soft takeoff, something that we can manage as we go along. Then, then we, sh- we, st- we still should uh, spend a lot of time figuring out how to get rid of that one percent or or how to manage that one percent. So, in my view, I I'm a kind of I do think that hard takeoff is more likely for various reasons than soft takeoff, but not like uh, convincingly. So, I think probably go like right now with like seventy percent hard takeoff and then thirty percent soft takeoff or so. When I interviewed Jaron Lanier, he told me that. Uh the singularity is likely going to end up with the blue screen of death. So he wasn't scared of hard takeoff scenarios at all. Uh, but he's a known critic. Uh, so anyway, what's the timeline then you see potentially to reaching that point? I mean, Ray Kurzweil has gone on the record that perhaps 2029, 28 or 2045, the latest, somewhere thereabouts. How? Where do you stand on that timeline? I mean, I don't have... Uh any date, I think it would be silly to have, to say that, yeah. Ray has a date. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I think it's like more like a marketing uh, uh, message than, than a very serious uh, uh, prediction. Uh, but uh, uh, I don't think we need to have uh, very concrete uh, prediction in mind, uh, as long as it's not like uh, thousands of years or hundreds of years. And I, I don't think we can be confident that it will be hundreds of years. 
to say nothing about thousands of years. We already know that we are not prepared. Uh, so, so we should we should uh, do stuff that uh, actually increase the probability of good outcomes now, even while we are uh, of, uh, not confident about uh, or uncertain about the exact timelines. But there is one piece of research that Future of Humanity Institute in Oxford did. Uh, it was a couple of articles. One was uh, uh, World uh, wait, Brain Emulation Roadmap, and the other was uh, like, uh, I don't know what was the name of the article, but the idea was that uh, under Sandberg, uh, the Future of Humanity Institute did uh, like a bunch of Monte Carlo simulations uh, to derive the, the probability distribution uh, for this century. The, the interesting thing about uh, uh, brain emulation is that it's uh, fairly fairly predictable way uh, to get the superhuman intelligence in the sense that uh, you don't need like uh, really hard to predict breakthroughs. Like uh, you, you can look at the existing trends in microscopy and, uh, and computing power and just extrapolate them and look at uh, what, what is our best knowledge about the uh, level of simulations that we need, need to make and then like uh, crunch it all in a Monte Carlo simulation and get the probability distribution out. And that's what he did. And, I think his probability estimate was that the 50% probability was in late 2060s. So, so it basically gives you one way of reaching superhuman, superhuman intelligence, uh, which basically should like, significantly lower your confidence if you're saying that, uh, that the AI is like 300 years or, or, uh, or 7,000 years away. Right. I have to agree with you on both points. Uh... Uh, and of course, I've interviewed Anders Sandberg and Stuart Armstrong and even the late uh, Dr. James Martin, uh, after whom the, the Oxford Martin School is named after. Um, uh, uh, so, and I have to agree with you with both the impact and the probability. I mean, there's nothing so far that I've seen that shows that it's impossible. And, and it seems that the majority opinion coalesces around mid-century. So we actually don't have too much time. I, I totally Totally agree with that. But uh, some of the critics uh, often criticize Ray, Ray Kurzweil for being too optimistic, underplaying the sort of existential risk threats posed to humanity and overplaying the upside. I think Ray Kurzweil comes off like, like that. Uh, but then yeah, if you're actually going to have a, sort of a deeper conversation with him, which I have, or or listen to listen to him more carefully, he, he, he's not like a, a sort of... A, 100% optimist. He, he does think that these, these issues are important and it's important to think about uh, uh, safety aspects. Yeah, of course, of course. I agree with that too. It's just uh, that's the perception at least. That's why I want to ask you, what's your probability or if I may push you to say, what's your percentage chance of uh, sort of us surviving the singularity perhaps in your view? Can you quantify that based on your experience and work in the last years hard to say uh like there are like i think like if the world would stop uh thinking about these issues and just go ahead with AI development as if we did like 10 or 20 years ago uh we were almost, we are almost certainly doing it uh, however the i basically look around and see that there's a massive amount of progress in the last few years uh, when people are kind of woken up uh to the, to the fact that we need to solve the things like uh, value alignment and uh, or yeah, figure out 
things how to how how we can constrain uh, the behaviors of uh, agents that are potentially much smarter than, than us and much more powerful when it comes to rearranging the environment and controlling the technological progress. Uh, and so these issues are taken much more seriously. So if I ex extrapolate that trend and, and see, like, kind of uh, take courage in the, in the last few years, and uh, then, then I, I'm actually really optimistic. I do think that uh, the, uh, I think we are more likely to survive than not. Uh, but uh, but this is just like based on the based on the great progress that we have made in the last few years. Because I'm always amazed what kind of number people give me. For example, Michael Onisimov gave me two percent. Uh, a number of other people from Miri have given me kind of very low percentage yeah, but, but points. I, too. When did it do that? Like uh, I, I had like uh, one one Miri Miri researcher say to me that like after some some breakthrough that uh, that ha ah, I had forgotten what it felt to be in double digits again, <laughs> meaning that, that uh -huh. uh, he basically saw that there was like so so great advance when it comes to safety that that they upgraded uh, to like 10 percent excellent point yeah that was about five years ago so let's hope we're in the double digit yeah, yeah. area things were again. Like really really bleak five years ago so so uh, yes fantastic excellent point so so you do believe that we can really build a friendly ai then yeah i mean that the term that we're using currently is value aligned uh value aligned ai uh, which sounds more sophisticated and also like uh, i think has better uh Better sound to it. The, uh, yeah, we absolutely can do it, and then we, we that there have been kind of uh, some research breakthroughs that uh, uh, just recently uh, that uh, point to uh, point to some ways how to do it. Uh, it's it's still like really early days, uh, but uh, yeah, I'm very hopeful that that this progress will continue and, and we figure it out how to do it. What is the most promising avenue, perhaps, you can share with us? Uh, one, uh, one research that's being done in conjunction with DeepMind and, uh, and Future of Humanity Institute is so-called interruptibility. So the idea is that you, you uh, configure or structure your reinforcement learn learner, uh, your reinforcement learning agent, in a way that... Uh, makes it indifferent to the state of being on or off so so it's like uh, like and you really want to make it absolutely indifferent so because like if it cares a little about being on it's still going to throw a universe at you in order to in order to make sure that it, it, it stays uh, stays on uh, or vice versa like if it if it cares a little about being off then it will throw a universe at, at you in order to uh, be turned off uh, but like if, if it's just too completely like indifferent, uh, then, then basically you would get uh, ability to control it later. Uh, say that okay, sorry, this isn't one, this isn't what I meant. Uh, I let, let me turn it off and, and restart again. To do it uh, basically the way we usually develop programs. Uh, look at what they're doing. No self-preservation. Yes. So so that so th and there seems to be I think uh, uh, deep mind and. Uh, uh, and uh, Stuart Armstrong at FHI are supposed to present it in July uh, in New York at uh, HKI, but uh, this is like just uh, something that I heard. I'm not sure if if, uh, if they will get to that point. So, and the other thing is uh, Paul Cristiano uh, in uh, at Berkeley is uh, doing a really interesting uh, research about uh, uh, he calls. 
what was it? Approval directed agents. So the idea is that instead of giving an AI utility function and just trying to really trying really hard to make sure that the utility function you get the utility function correct in the first try, you build an AI whose purpose is to figure out the utility function. Uh, so figure out what do we want and then then do uh, do what do what we want. And the way Paul structures things is that uh, he creates. Um, the idea is to create uh, uh, just like a usual deep learning or, or reinforcement learning agent that's trying to make predictions. What would humans do in my place? What would or what would a human committee do in my place? And then use that prediction module to guide its behavior while randomly sampling from actual human uh, humans or human committee. And then the nice thing about it that you can even even sample uh, retroactively. So, so you, you, the AI goes about doing, doing his stuff and every, every once in a while it stops and asks the committee that uh, was that the right thing to do or not? And if it, if it gets like, uh, get this, it gets information, it basically back, back propagates and trains its uh, prediction module in order to basically uh, like... Uh, humanizing the yes, AI. Yes, humanizing the AI. So that, that's like one, like it, I mean, it has its own downsides, etc. but like it just, Think about it. Like the world has perhaps like ten people working on these issues. Like if we had like hundreds of, or thousands, like think about the amount of progress that we could be making. Right. I agree. I agree. And this the utility functions reminded me a little bit to Stefan Mohundro's work on provable, uh, safe uh, mathematical constraints and what he calls AI scaffolding. But the bottom bottom line is that, I, and I keep like selling selling and saying this to people that <laughs> uh, the topic of uh, developing value-aligned AIs is just really, really interesting. Uh, you don't, uh, it's not, you don't, like if you're developing just competent AIs, like you have to uh, just think about uh, sort of technical challenge, like sometimes like domain-specific uh, technical challenge. Whereas if you're thinking about how can we develop something that uh, uh, that could potentially exceed human intelligence. You're effectively in the process of uh, searching for the best possible future for humanity. And this is not just like technical challenge. This is like, you know, you end up in philosophy, like <laughs> almost like daily. So, so it's, it's, uh, it's actually really, really fascinating. Uh, and so I think like, just more people should do it because it's so much, so interesting and so much fun. Exactly my point, and that's why my blog is not really about technology, but my blog is about ethics, because I believe what we make with technology is what makes the difference one way or another. In other words, technology is amoral, but what we, how we use it, how we apply it, makes it immoral or moral, and it's a choice, right? And it's a directed choice. It's a conscious, hopefully conscious choice that we're aware of, and we direct towards the better outcome rather than the worse. Uh, so perhaps now I should ask you about the importance of philosophy and ethics here. Do you think that matters? Oh, I think philosophy matters a lot, uh, especially. <clears throat> I think there's a, I think there's a like very fertile cross section between philosophy and computer science. Uh, as Daniel Dennett has said, computers keep philosophy honest. Uh, so if you are a philosopher who can also program, instead of uh, making uh, statements, philosophical statements uh, that based that are grounded in your intuitions, you can actually write computer code 
uh, that expresses your philosophical thoughts. And that's like, I think, way more productive because, as I say, that philosophers have had like thousands of years to think interesting thoughts and write interesting uh, uh, sort of, I don't know, dialogues and, and, uh, and pieces. And now we need answers and we need those answers in computer code. So, so it's, it's actually a very valuable area. Well, Jan, I've been keeping you here for way too long, perhaps. So let me close our conversation, unfortunately, down with the last two short questions. First is, where can people find more about you and your work? Huh. What's the best place? So, so well, one thing I did, I did edge.org uh, interview last year, and where I like you know, spent uh, an hour a little bit more uh, explaining uh, these things. I don't really have like a sort of uh, public web presence. Uh, it's somewhere down in my to-do list to do this. Like I, I, I sometimes joke that if the world is going to be destroyed in the next 20 years, it's going to be destroyed by someone that I personally know. Uh, so it's like, I don't really need like a web presence to reach those people. Uh, I, I can just wow. uh, go and network with them and talk to them. Uh, but yeah, eventually I might end up uh, developing uh, some like public, more public presence, which I, yeah. You can just Google me and see see my some of my talks. Very interesting. Yeah, I have to to say I noticed that that issue when I was kind of doing my background <laughs> preparation for our conversation today. Jan, we've touched on a variety of issues today, and I've kind of pushed you, I hope, in a friendly way, uh, to kind of reassess and and rejustify your your stance. And we covered a variety of topics. What, in your opinion, is the best way to wrap this up? What's the parting message you want to send us with? Uh, I, I think the, uh, I mean, there, there could be many, many messages. So, so I'm just like picking one. One might be that uh, uh, I think solving uh, value-aligned AI is obviously the most important problem that, that human, humanity has, unless we screw up in some, some other ways uh, before we get there. <clears throat> and uh, I think it's an engineering challenge. So uh, it's not uh, productive to, to uh, put on your psychologist hat and think about like what uh, what would an AI? What would I do if I were, were an AI? It is as productive as thinking about what. How can I build a bridge by imagining uh, what would I do if I were a bridge? So one metaphor that I use uh, recently, and it has gotten like I've gotten some positive feedback about this metaphor being good, is that uh, we should think about AI development as if uh, building a rocket. Uh, you can imagine that uh, that humanity is already sitting in a rocket. Uh, that hasn't taken off yet, and there are like, tens of thousands of people and uh, and tens of uh, billions of dollars annually being poured into into making sure that the acceleration is going to be there, so we can actually uh, reach liftoff. Uh, however, there are just tens or even less uh, people working on the on the steering bit, and and luckily the world is waking up to two important facts. One is that uh, that steering is important in rockets. Uh, it's not just about acceleration. And the uh, second thing is that, that this is an engineering challenge. Just like putting a rocket 
uh, from putting a rocket to moon or Mars is an engineering challenge. Uh, figuring out how to do AI safely in a, in a value-aligned way is an engineering challenge. So we need to actually uh, take, the, take this as an engineering challenge, not as a, as a you know, political or, or psychological challenge. I, I love your point. Steering is important, even in a rocket, and engineering, it's an engineering problem. But let me just push back for a second here, just a little bit, if I may. I can't resist the temptation. Because you said, uh, unless we have some other major disaster. Well, in the next 20 or 30 years, we are scheduled, just the United States, to spend a trillion dollars on nuclear weapons, by the way. Not billions, trillions. So there's more money there. Uh, and, and those disasters that can prevent us from AI, as you said, should, in my opinion, be higher ranked as existential uh, 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 risks. And those are nuclear war or conflict. And those are perhaps issues like uh, global warming and stuff like that. But also to your second point, it's an engineering problem. I would say it's not just an engineering problem, right? It's an ethical problem because, yes, the engineering problem is how can we make the rocket steer at warp speed? The philosophical problem is where do we want oh, to yeah, go sure. in the first place, sure, sure. right? So how do we consider the potential possibilities for directions and how do we rank them? How do we choose the safest that, and that's, best That's possible? a beautiful, beautiful analogy with, with, uh, uh, with rocket. Like, like choosing where to go is, is not, not an engineering challenge, uh, but actually making sure that we get there is an engineering challenge. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think it's a mutual, both engineering and an ethical problem, okay. uh, which to be successful, each one of those solutions on their own is insufficient. We need the engineering problem resolved, but we need the philosophical one too, together. And if one of them fails, I think we would have a total yeah, failure. Absolutely, I agree. And also I cheer on like all, all people who, who are working on uh, like sort of more conventional problems, uh, like global warming or fighting malaria uh, and these, these, they are like, I, I take all the existential risk reduction that I can get, basically. It's just like, I spend my time where I think I can make the biggest difference. Fantastic. And, and you are making a difference and I appreciate your work and your time today very much. So, Jan Tallinn, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation. 